The usual way for a respiratory virus to become infectious is that you breathe in droplets that have been expelled by an infectious person. There are other routes, and with SARS coronavirus 2, they appear to be the less dominant route. Hello there and welcome to Let's Talk Clean Air, where we find out more about how clean air can affect the quality process for you and the workplace. This month, we'll be finding out how you can protect yourself from viruses from today's COVID-19 right through to those still to come. My name is Dusty Rhodes and joining me is biosafety consultant Dr. Jonathan Gaughan and from Camphill, Chris Hughes. A little bit about Jonathan Gaughan. He is a former HSE Principal Specialist Inspector for Biological Agents, University Biological Safety Officer and Research Scientist in UK Government Academic Healthcare and Industrial Containment Laboratories. He's currently the Chair of the Biosafety Steering Group for ISTR and represents the ISTR membership on the Biological Safety Leadership Group. Chris Hughes from Camphill has 28 years experience working in the life sciences and healthcare market, working regularly with senior level executives, academics, regulatory compliance officers and government representatives across the United States, Europe and Asia. John, uh, let me start with you. COVID-19 is the latest in, we have to recognise, a long list of viruses over the last few decades. We've had SARS, Ebola, the Zika virus, etc. Can you uh, briefly explain to us about viruses and how they affect the human system? Hi, Dusty. Yeah, so viruses are, as you've uh, said there, there are many and varied. They're a microorganism. Where they differ from a lot of the microorganisms that people generally think about, which are bacteria and the sort of things that you can pick up from dirty surfaces and things like that. So bacteria can um, exist on their own. They're alive on their own. They can replicate on their own. Viruses are, generally speaking, much simpler, and they cause us trouble by um, getting into our bodies. They infect our cells and they hijack our cells to produce new viruses. And that's what we're seeing during this current pandemic. There's a vast array of viruses, lots of different ways that they can infect us, and different viruses will infect us in different ways. So to think about some of the viruses that you may have heard of, so HIV, for example, you need very close contact to transmit HIV, so um, it's sexually transmitted, or if you can, you can get it from blood transfusion, so blood-to-blood contact, whereas something like influenza and SARS um, is a respiratory virus, so it tends to infect us um, via very often via the air, sometimes by picking it up off of surfaces and getting into our lung cells. Viruses will cause us um, illness, um, generally speaking, um, depending on where they infect us. So HIV infects our blood cells, um, which means we can no longer mount an immune response, whereas something like influenza or uh, SARS coronavirus 2 gets into our lung cells and causes us illness by affecting how our lungs function. And very often as well, we will be ill because of the way that our immune system reacts to that virus. And I think that's certainly something that is um, coming um, into play um, in the current pandemic. So COVID-19 is very much um, a lung disease. We, We have difficulty in breathing for various reasons due to the infection. And really the um, viruses will be transmitted in lots of, you know, in, in various different ways. Obviously, you know, if you're, if you've got, generally speaking, a respiratory virus like SARS coronavirus 2, which causes COVID 19, 
will be breathed in. And so whilst there are different ways in which you can catch it, you can catch it through hand-to-mouth contact from a surface, for example, but actually the dominant one appears to be via the air. And that's what's been informing a lot of our um, a lot of the measures to try and control that virus at the moment. I've heard stories where I understand that if somebody's in front of you and they breathe on you, that there is a chance of the, the virus getting through to you. If they wear a mask, then obviously that helps prevent that. But then I've also heard stories of people who've been on a bus where somebody with a virus was on the bus 20 minutes beforehand, yet the virus was still able to transmit. Can you tell me a little bit more about how air viruses go from A to B? Yeah, so certainly. So a virus like <clears throat> SARS coronavirus 2, um, which is the virus that's, that, that we're dealing with in the COVID-19 pandemic, um, like I say, there's usually different mechanisms by which they can transmit. And those different mechanisms, one will, will predominate. So the usual way for a respiratory virus to be um, to become infectious is that you breathe in droplets that have been expelled by an infectious person. And people are producing droplets all the time. They're producing droplets whilst they're talking. I'm producing droplets now. And um, some of those smaller ones, the smaller droplets, we, we would term an aerosol. So you can have an infectious aerosol containing the virus. And obviously people that are nearby um, will breathe that in, which gives the virus access to your lung cells, which are the cells that it likes to infect. And once that infection has has started, you've got it until your immune system manages to beat it, or there is some kind of, you know, potentially some kind of treatment that um, that supports you for your immune system to clear that. Um, there are other routes, and with SARS coronavirus two, they appear to be the less dominant routes where you might be able to pick that up. So SARS can um, survive in respiratory secretions, for example, on a surface for a period of time. So if somebody else comes into contact with those secretions and then, say, touches their face, um, then you're once again giving the virus access to the types of cells in your respiratory system that it likes to infect. I have to say the dominant one appears to be the airborne route, so the, the breathing in route. What we can see from this virus is that most people um, will be infected by it if they're within a metre of an infected person. Um, which would suggest that actually that, that there's sort of short-range um, airborne transmission going on. But there are other routes that it can get to you. They're just not as dominant. Let me ask you, how much of the virus do we need to inhale in order to be infected? Um, well, uh, once again, that's very much something that's dependent on the virus that you're dealing with. Um, I would suggest very often what you'll see with viruses, with new viruses, so when I say new virus, this is a virus that's jumped out of an animal population into humans relatively recently, probably sometime in 2018. It's found a way to infect humans through mutation. Um, what you tend to find with viruses like that is that they're not very infectious. And we've actually seen that with SARS coronavirus too. So in the first wave of this pandemic, the, the strain that was predominating wasn't particularly infectious. Um, so you probably have to breathe in quite a lot of virus. I couldn't put a number on it, but you probably have to breathe in quite a lot of infectious virus in order for that virus to establish an infection. What we may be seeing with this new variant is that actually it's adapted a little bit better to infecting humans. 
and actually it can generate a productive infection. It can it can really start to affect people with much less of uh, much less of an infectious dose is actually the, the terminology that people would use there. So it it varies from virus to virus, and it can change with strains of virus as they as they adapt and as they mutate. Okay, just thinking about uh, COVID-19, which, of course, is what everybody's thinking about this year. Have you any examples you can give me of of, um, an outbreak in a working facility or within a building or a processing plant? Well, I think there are an awful lot of um, with with COVID-19. I think there are, you know, there there, there are lots of um, examples of, you know, outbreaks within populations that have been people that have been working close together. I know that there are some published um, studies where people have been infected by the virus in a restaurant and um, examples where they've been infected by the virus whilst on an aircraft. And so, you know, there are there are some examples out there, if you look in the literature, of being able to map outbreaks. Very often it's not clear where the virus has come from, and sometimes it's clear that actually the outbreak has been because you've been in the workplace with someone else that's been infected or been in the home with someone else that's been infected. Can I ask you about aircraft, seeing as you mentioned them? Uh, They say that an aircraft is actually one of the least likely places where you are going to uh, pick up a virus because the air is turned over so frequently. Yeah. Do you believe this? I think generally speaking, I think you can believe that. I think the you know the the way that the air moves in an aircraft is pressurized. The air is actually moving you know relatively quickly. It's being pumped in and pumped out to maintain pressure. So, like I say, the turnover of air, the dilution of air, it tends to you know the, the air comes in at certain points in the cabin and it gets extracted from certain points in the cabin. And I think that's that's probably true. Um, I think there are, however. Um, some issues in all, you know, potential workspaces and places where we might find ourselves where uh, we need to be mindful of the direction the air is moving. Because obviously, you know, if if air is moving directly between a person who is infected and a person who is uninfected, you can expect that two metre rule to start breaking down a little bit. So now Chris from Camphill is with us. Chris, what do you make of all this? Well, it's it's a fascinating topic, Dusty, um, for sure. And uh, listening to John there and all his experience, and and one of the fascinating things for Canfield has been joining the dots up, as we like to say. So it's understanding the virology, the microbiology that's going on, and tying it in with the uh, air filtration, clean air aspect, uh, and the ventilation. Really joining those dots up together, and. We've been engaged in quite a number of studies that have been funded, unsurprisingly, since the pandemic, um, and they really accelerated as we got into uh, the first lockdown, ranging from all areas of singing, music, speaking, uh, through to dentistry and healthcare. And one of the fascinating things is just the variety uh, of things and factors that can alter risk within these different activities. Okay, uh, let me go back to John. And so we've got a very good overview of viruses at the moment. I want to ask Chris uh, in a moment about the control of airborne viruses within workplace environments. Uh, But first, what about more in lab conditions? How do you control airborne viruses? 
Yeah, so obviously um, one of the um, one of the interesting factors here is that people have been working um, in laboratories with um, large amounts of airborne viruses for many many years, um, decades in fact, for research purposes. And when I say large amounts of viruses, I mean virus that's been grown up into to you know to levels that are way in excess of what you'd encounter. Um, if you were to be in proximity to an infectious person. Um, and we've been using various principles in the laboratory and the principles of biosafety. They're actually, you know, they're, they're not just the principles of biosafety, they're the principles of dealing with any kind of hazardous substance um, and applying those principles in the laboratory to stop people that are working in the lab from becoming infected with the virus that they're working on. And with airborne viruses in particular, or viruses that can transmit via an airborne route, um, which would include things like influenza and SARS and SARS coronavirus 2. Um, one of the um, key features of that control is uh, the movement and filtration of air. Um, we've been using safety cabinets, um, which use airflow to make sure that you know any airborne contamination is taken away from the um, research worker in a direction that's either sucked away or blown down. And the laboratories themselves, for dealing with some of the uh, more harmful um, airborne viruses and more harmful microorganisms generally, in fact, so things like tuberculosis, for example, would have to be handled in what we call a containment level three laboratory. Um, and anything above containment level three um, that requires anything above containment level three uses airflow to actually suck air into the facility. So it's not blowing contaminated air out. That air is then filtered and taken somewhere else. Very often it's just vented into the atmosphere after passing through a filter. So we've actually been using ventilation and airflow to control exposure to airborne viruses in the laboratory for a very long time. Obviously, you know, this is a public health issue. Mm. This virus is out there on the streets and in our workplaces, and we can't work inside a laboratory. However, what we can do is apply some of those principles to the way we design our buildings. Well, let me ask Chris then about that, because, you know, laboratory conditions are one thing. Workplace is another. Uh, and what kind of controls are in place in workplaces? There are really two key areas here that we're focusing on, and that is uh, we need to look at the air that is coming into that facility, making sure that it is filtered uh, as efficiently as possible so that we know that the air we're bringing in is clean, in inverted commas, to a, a regulated level, so it's standard-driven, internationally recognised standards. But crucially, um, it is what goes on in, in what we term the occupied space. So the activity that is going on in the room, whether it's a school or a lecture theatre or an office, you know, how many people are in there? What are they doing? How long are they there for? So how do we protect those people? Uh, it's filtering the air away from their breathing zone as far as possible so that they be at high level or low level or a combination of both. Um, so it really is looking at individual uh, sectors, I suppose, and situations, Dusty, about bringing the best solution, but using tried and tested uh, products uh, and approaches and risk assessments. Tell me, tell me about another proven system, the uh, Kosh hierarchy of control. At the moment, the hierarchy of control, if we look at government guidance, it, we're all working from home. You know, we're recording this from our offices at home. Uh, normally, we would be 
in our offices with our colleagues. So that whole thing of physical separation is the first thing. If we don't have to be together, then we shouldn't be. And as we roll down through, if that's not the case, if we have to be together, what are engineered solutions? You know, how can we look at protecting that environment? And that comes back to what we were talking about just now, Dusty, you know, the filtration approach, the air that we're feeding into those spaces, how we're removing the air out, how we're filtering it, how we're monitoring it, um, and, and so on and so forth. And actually, interestingly, in the hierarchy of control, and John, please correct me if I'm wrong here, but almost the last thing we should be doing is under COSH, having to resort to personal protective equipment such as a face mask is really the last line of defence. Uh, well, that's interesting, actually, that uh, Kosh would recommend masks as a last line of defence. John, can you expand on what they mean by that? Yeah, I mean, I think what Chris means is that actually it's the, it's the last type of measure that you would, you would generally employ. The Kosh hierarchy of control, so this, you know, this is what underpins an awful lot of the principles of controlling people's exposure to um, harmful substances, and that includes um, uh, biological substances like viruses. So at, at the top of the list, um, and, and, and it, like I say, this hierarchy, it's, it's, a, um, it's a hierarchy of reliability, if you like. So you know, the measures that you have at the top of the list are the ones that are going to be most effective. Um, the ones that you have near the bottom of the list are the least effective. So at the top of the list in the hierarchy of control, you, you know, if you can, you eliminate the agent entirely. Now, obviously that only really works if you're deliberately working on something. So you can, you know, if you, if you can avoid working on something harmful, you should avoid working on it. Um, then next down the list is you can substitute that for something else. Um, so rather than work on something harmful, you work on something that isn't harmful that and that takes you to the same place or work with something that's uh, uh, less harmful that takes you to the same place. Then you're into where well, you can't eliminate it. You can't use something else that so we're into. And, and this is and this is really where we're at with, with with COVID. You know, it's there. It's it's in our workplaces. It's on the street corner. We cannot avoid the fact that we are going to be exposed to it um, at some point. So you employ control measures in order to um, reduce the likelihood that you're going to come into contact with that um, substance and be caused harm as a result of that. One of the key measures there would be to um, create a barrier between you and it. So can you put, basically, can you put it in a box? You know, I don't think we can really do that. Um, but there are other um, control measures. So there are, you know, we call them engineering control measures and airflow and filtration would be engineering control measures that might, that, you know, that if employed properly and effectively um, can be used to reduce your um, exposure. Um, there are other things that you can do as well. So, you know, as we were talking about earlier on in terms of coming into contact with surfaces, if we are going to, you know, reduce the, the risk of coming into contact with the virus from surfaces. We need to, you know, we need to clean better. We need to wash our hands. Um, all of the measures that we're actually hearing from the government and various governments around the world as, um, as being important for the control of the virus. Um, and you know, we can, and, and we can also, we can also change the way we work. As Chris pointed out, you know, we can we can reduce the likelihood of coming into contact with it by working at home or working via Zoom or taking the car and not the train, um, all of those kind of things. I think I think what he was saying about masks 
is that that's down the bottom of that hierarchy of reliability. So it's the least, it's the least reliable. It's effective, but it's the least reliable way of preventing exposure in that list of things that I've just given you. All right. Um, There are many types of clean air technology, Chris, that are labelled as the most effective solution. Uh, Mm. What considerations do you think somebody should take into account when choosing the right clean air solution? Well, I think, uh, as we talked about earlier, Dusty, um, it does depend on the situation. So I'm going to, if I take two somewhat extreme examples, uh, if we look in a, let's say, a lecture theatre uh, at a university, so at the moment they're very challenged because we're in the middle of winter, uh, temperatures outside are cold, uh, and the advice rightly is to increase ventilation. So that means opening windows. But obviously, from a thermal comfort point of view, that's not very good. So we need to look at things like the number of people in that lecture theatre, where they're spaced, how they're seated, the activity, the size of the room. And then you can use mobile air cleaners, just strategically placed, um, and they can be incredibly effective. You know, they have filters that are tested, manufactured and tested to latest global standards. So we can prove their efficiency. And as John has said previously, these filters have been used for decades in these high containment laboratory settings. So uh, there's plenty, plenty of proof of principle out there. And then if we go to a different setting, like uh, a dentist, for example, a whole different set of parameters. But we've learned and we continue to learn so much more. So we can apply exactly the same products into that setting. But because we understand uh, what is going on in that setting, we understand the risks, the aerosols and the droplets, what's being produced uh, and how they behave, you know, the, the characterization of those facilities. So, again, we can use the same products and we can position them specifically. We can help clients understand what they have already and we can provide them with some uh, logical, simple steps based on existing technology to, to help them out. And, and I think, crucially, this is about risk mitigation. You know, it's not risk elimination. This is part of their COVID guidance and protocols to keep working. But we can we can massively reduce risk. Risk mitigation is a, a great way, I think, of summing it up. And from listening to what you gentlemen are saying, it looks like, you know, kind of cleaner air is a very critical part of that risk mitigation. Uh, we leave it there for this week. John Gone, thank you very much. And Chris Hughes as well. Thank you to you both. Thank you. Thank you. If you would like to find out more about this, just follow the links in the show notes. You'll find them in the description of this podcast on your phone or whichever device you're listening to us on. Uh, They include links, contact details and anything else you might need to get more information. Our podcast today was produced by Camphill, a world leader in the development of production of air filters and clean air solutions. Do remember, you can get the podcast automatically. Just click the subscribe button on your player right now. But for now, from myself, Dusty Rhodes and from Chris and from John, thank you very much for listening. Take care.